Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We're here with Peter Ellican, who is a criminal defense attorney in Boston. And Peter, can you can you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I am. In fact, as just stated, that was a totally correct statement. I am truly Peter Ellican, and I'm a criminal defense attorney. I'm a instructor in criminal law at Bridgewater State University, and I've written a number of books on the uh, criminal justice process. And you're also the legal expert for Boston 25. Uh, uh, that's right. It's a local Boston TV station that I uh, I do regular co- uh, legal analysis commentary on that station too. Fantastic. So we're here today and we're talking to you about the Brian Walsh case. And I've seen that you've been interviewed on this case as well. And very, very interesting case. So sort of as a, a legal expert, give us sort of a bird's eye view a little bit of this case and other things that you've been able to, or that you've thought about from a sort of a legal perspective? Well, it is um, fascinating for, um, first of all, it seems like a very, very strong factual case against them. It just seems like they have, to use that cliche, a mountain of evidence uh, of him uh, being caught in a number of lies. They have him saying that uh, after this murder took place, that that he says he had nothing to do with, that they have him at a store spending $450 on cleaning products and mops and things like that. They have him where he denied and said he was ever even out that day. And they certainly, one of the incredible things in this day and age, it's really fascinating that there's so much electronic evidence against him. It's, it's sort of, we almost live in a new world today because what they did is immediately after when they said that this uh, murder took place, they have him online Googling how, you know, how long does it take for a body to give off a smell? How do I clean blood off the floor? How do you dismember a body? What cleaning fluids work to clean up? And it just seems damning that out of the blue in the middle of the night, he'd suddenly be Googling that after the indications are that they, they're alleging that he, uh, he did commit this murder and did dismember her. And then, of course, there's also this, as I said, not, not only is there this Google evidence, but there's also online not online, I'm sorry, On there's video cameras everywhere showing him dumping off bags in various dumpsters, et cetera. And they, you know, they have him in places, as I mentioned, they, they've got him buying the cleaning products in a store when he said he uh, never stepped out except for a few minutes to buy some ice cream for his son that day. He's also, since he's awaiting sentencing on a federal case where he's pleaded guilty, uh, they do have GPS on him so they can monitor where he is. So in every way, it seems like they've really been able to build up, as I said, this mountain of evidence against them. The only thing I will say, though, that might help him in a partial way is that all the indications are that this was not a planned out murder. And therefore, right now he's charged with, here in Massachusetts law, he's charged with first degree murder, which if you're guilty of, that's life without possibility of parole. First degree murder, the difference between first degree murder or second degree murder or manslaughter, which are lesser crimes, 
is that there's usually the thought of premeditation. Now, here he is. There's a lot of indications here. And if I was a defense attorney and found that I couldn't beat the whole case, I might just go for a lesser charge, find him guilty of manslaughter or murder where he'd do some prison time, but there'd be hope that he could get out at some point in his life. And the reason I say that there's indications it wasn't premeditated, because why would he suddenly be scrambling, looking for cleaning products? And what do you do with a body and all, you know, after the fact? If he was planning it and premeditating it, I would think that he would have done that research in the you know coming weeks and you know what do you, how do I get rid of a body that's in my house and how long does it take before it gives off an odor and how do you get blood stains out of a wood floor uh, all those things I might have asked first and I would have bought the cleaning products first etc. This seems like he's panicked, scrambling, and just doing a horrible job of covering up what may not have been a planned murder. So as I said, as bad as any killing is, they treat the premeditated where you can think about it. Uh, a little harsher than murders that happen spur of the moment. You you lose your head, you snap. There's an argument, somebody blows up, and it goes too far. Yes, you'll still, you know, the wrath of God is going to fall on you in any of those situations when you cause the death of any other human being. But it may not be as harsh as if they can show that it's premeditated. And here the indications all are that there was no planning in advance for this. His attorney, Tracy Minor, has basically said, look, this has been on trial in the media, essentially. Do you think it's possible for Brian Walsh to be able to get a fair trial? That always makes it a little bit more difficult because there's so much evidence out there in the media. And everybody, it seems like the public just thinks, obviously thinks he's the most evil person they've ever seen. And they're aware of the strength of the evidence against them. However, as time goes by, if there's very often... I've, I've noticed I never like to pass judgment in any case, you know, right at the outset, because we've all seen cases that it just seems like they've got somebody nailed cold in the and then it turns out as time goes by, more evidence comes and some of the earlier things we heard weren't true. And I'm, I've seen it where we've all had our minds completely changed. And, you know, we see that awful uh, since we have the ad since the advent of DNA the last couple of decades, we see people on death row, people who not only they thought had evidence, but the jury listened to it, gave them a fair trial, convicted it. And then it turns out, surprise, they really didn't do it. And somebody else did it. And so the fact that we think somebody, there's a real strong case against somebody, evidence can come out later that can totally turn our minds around. So yeah, the, the premise that you just stated, the idea that there's just a ton of evidence and he's really looked at as an evil monster in the public's eye at this point, can we find some dispassionate jurors who are going to be non-biased and, and give it all a fair hearing? It makes it tougher, but I, I don't know. I'm, all, I'm, I'm actually impressed. Most of the, the jur jurors don't always get it right, but most of the time they do get it right. And I think that they can be fair. And if new evidence comes out, I think that they could be open to uh, listening to it. And he does have, a, I mean, his attorney is a very good attorney. Maybe people who aren't local aren't as familiar with her, but can you speak to, she's, she's a well-known local attorney, correct? Yeah, she is. She's extremely highly regarded, highly respected. Although she tends to have a reputation, and it's a nationwide reputation. It's not even local. I mean, she's okay. really that good. But there's a lot more white collar, uh, less of this kind of murder kind of case. But however, she's just so highly regarded among the legal community. She's really what you would refer to as a lawyer's lawyer. And as strong as the circumstantial evidence is against Brian Walsh, what are some of the challenges for the prosecution not having a body? having a, a corpus to let die. That is, it, it is a burden, but it's, they have had people do get convicted of, of murder when the body is never found. 
And there's another one that makes it harder. A lot of times, nobody can figure out a motive. And you don't need a motive to prove somebody guilty. You don't have to say why they did it. But jurors sitting there in a jury go, well, why would he do that? Why did that mm. happen? And so jurors, they like to see a body that you can prove that the person's dead. Here, it just seems like the evidence is strong of whatever DNA or blood evidence that they could be coming out with in the future. See if it is or body tissue and see if there is anything stronger that they come out with. But it, it is a hurdle to jump over, but you don't need a body. You don't even need to prove a motive like, well, why did they do it? We thought it was a nice couple that got along. These are burdens, but they're not deal breakers at all for the prosecution. Very interesting. Well, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see what's ahead. I think this is going to be a big trial in Boston. Uh, yeah, I, th I think it is. And again, that issue uh, too, if it gets down to it, where it turns out that they can't defeat the idea that he did, uh, in fact, kill her, then it could be a question of what the actual charge is, whether it's going to be second degree murder or manslaughter that they can prove. And sometimes that's a huge victory for an attorney. People don't realize that. For example, as I said, if, she get, if, if he gets convicted of first degree murder, that's life without possibility of parole. If it's manslaughter, where they think it happened spur of the moment without any premeditation at all, then you can have a sentence anywhere from nothing, which is, wouldn't happen, but anywhere from no jail time to up to 20 years, and you're eligible for good time and parole and, and all that. So that would be considered a huge victory. So I, I guess somebody, you know, a lawyer represents somebody and the person gets convicted of manslaughter. People may say, oh, too, but you know, you lost that one. They're convicted and they're in prison and all that. And I would say, no, that would be, that could be a huge victory for an attorney to make sure your client is not convicted of first degree murder, but of a lesser offense. So it's hard to decide what's a victory in this case. But again, as his, as his attorney, Tracy Minor had said, we're way too early in this case to kind of pass judgment. And unfortunately, the public does. They hear some media reports and everybody kind of already uh, kind of gives the verdict. Oh, guilty is charged. And it is early. We have seen people, uh, we have seen cases turn around as investigations go on, evidence comes out. And so I'm always hesitant to pass judgment, you know, within days of hearing about a particular case. I had a question for you. This came up actually with a discussion from another attorney on another case that I'm working on. What we were talking about is prior bad acts mm -hmm. and how what's called prior bad acts can impact a current case, even though they might be two separate cases. In the case of, of Brian and Anna Walsh, if they can show that there was this threat to Anna's life back in 2014 made by Brian Walsh, is that a prior bad act? Can you explain to our audience what, what a prior bad act is? Uh, yeah. Generally speaking, prior bad acts, or if you have a criminal record in the past, or you committed the same kind of offense in the past, are usually not allowed to be used in the court of law. And there's a reason for that. They feel that it's so unfair and prejudicial against somebody. For example, you get picked up for a bank robbery. Let's say you really didn't do it. You're really innocent. You're one of the suspects in a bank robbery. And they bring in the fact that no, years ago, you did commit a bank robbery and the jury finds out. Then they, the jury may just say, oh, look, he did it before, do it again. That's why they say it's unfair and prejudicial for the most part. But one of the weaselly terrible things about criminal law is that there's a lot of rules like this one where there's a rule and then we got about 50 exceptions. And I think lawyers do that in order. This is how we make money. This is how we get paid because the average person can't figure out exactly what we're doing. 
In a case like prior bad acts, as I said, you normally can't bring it up because it's just unfair and prejudicial to make people think that, oh, because you did something in the past bad, therefore you'll do it again. And certainly you can't bring in somebody's just general bad reputation. However, there are exceptions, and this may be one of them. If you can show a pattern leading up to the offense, as in the case that they may try to bring up in this particular case, where he may have threatened her, if they can show evidence that he may have threatened her in the past, that she may have been afraid of being killed by him in the past, you can bring anything like that up, then they may be able to bring that up here in the Walsh case. And this is what legal battles are in court. I know the prosecutor would definitely want to bring in prior bad acts if he'd ever threatened her in the past and say it's part of the pattern. And then the defense attorney will come and say, no, no, judge, we, you got to leave that out. And this is why we, uh, we have battles in court. So this could go either way. But I have a sense that if they specifically in this Walsh case can bring in the fact that he may have threatened her life in the past and that she was terrified of him for that, they very well may be able to make an exception to the rule and bring that in as what we call in the legal profession, a prior bad act. Thank you. Can I ask you too, I'm not saying there are, there is any evidence of, of domestic violence or anything like that. If they were to find domestic violence between Anna and Brian, either which way, could they bring that in as well? Probably if you can, well, this is where we have the battles. I can see the arguments on both sides of prosecution and defense counsel, but here they do have a chance of bringing it in because they can show here's a pattern leading up to things that we can lay the groundwork for what he was doing. Not just that he may have been violent to somebody sometime in the past, but in this specific case, that things were leading up to this incident, then they might be able to show a pattern here that they would be allowed to introduce. So this would hold true for his federal indictment. So that would all stay out, we're saying. Uh, yeah, if that was just his federal indictment, it had to do with some kind of financial fraud. Right. And a con job that he did would probably have to, they'd probably be successful, the defense counsel, in keeping it out. Because that would just be a general smear against them as Cal, right. a person not of good character. He said, doesn't have a lot of integrity, this guy. Well, what does that have to do? A lot of people with bad integrity, a lot of people who were sleazy and, and uh, take other people's money out, they wouldn't be murderers. So right. it's often a, a different thing. So I would say in that case, that would be a prior bad act, just a, a general smear on his reputation and of character that they would be able to keep out. And a jury in a trial like this would never be able to hear. I have a specific question, though, for you, too, Peter. In one of these affidavits that one of the witnesses wrote in the probate issue with the father, the affiant, the person who wrote the affidavit, said that they witnessed Brian threatening some guards with a stanchion, threatening to kill them. Would something like that be admissible, or is that hearsay? Uh, that would probably be on the fence of whether it could be admitted. I think in all likelihood, they'd be able to keep that out again. They just can't show you behave badly in the past. It would have to sort of be maybe a pattern showing a motive in this particular case of, uh, of her death and not just that he's been uh, badly behaved in the past. I think the prosecution would probably try to bring that in. I'm not so sure they'd be successful there. That's why I hate it. Sometimes we lawyers can't give a black and white answer like, oh, this is, a, you know, I've been a lawyer for four decades and this is exactly what's going to happen. We often do this thing where we, it's kind of like a, a weaselly dance where, well, in this case, in this situation, it may, and in that situation, it may not. 
and we're not really sure, but these are the arguments on both sides. This is one time I really have to do that here to say I can't give you a real definite black and white answer. Peter, I want to ask you, and I, I think a lot of cases come down to, to finances, and I think this case may come down to finances. Maybe not, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more. But so he has been, de- in my understanding, declared indigent. And I'm curious as to why he doesn't have access to their joint finances. What's going on there? I actually don't know the specific answer why they don't have why he doesn't have access. What it may be, because normally, even if he's accused, it may sound very, very unfair and strange, but normally in a situation like that, even if he's accused of killing his wife, they still, if they had joint money together, he would still be the beneficiary and actually could could get, could get all their money in the long run. However, I would suspect that her family may have done something to block that because they could. And this is another one where it's not clear at this time if there's anything behind the scenes. But and if there was money, it's possible that her family might try to uh, uh, block that and say, no, we want to keep it for the uh, we want to keep it for the children or it's in trust for them or well, they can make legal efforts to that. But that's not normally a done deal in this case. And we've seen it before where somebody's accused of killing a spouse and yet they can be spending the money for their own lawyers. And you'd say, wow, that's really unfair. He kills her. And yet he's like, you know, benefiting and, and, and you know, having the lawyers who are going to protect him against those charges, you know, using her money and she's the victim. But technically, they can. He often has access to that unless some kind of legal move has been made to uh, freeze the funds while this case is going to determine if he is responsible. Because if he is responsible, if he is found responsible and guilty for killing her, then he would not have access to all the assets. I'm speculating that there's not there's no money there, that there was no liquid assets, because I don't see much involvement from her family. Sarah and I have covered so many cases where there is family involvement and the husband, or usually it's the husband, sometimes the wife is spending the assets on attorneys. I think though, guys, here, something funny was going on financially prior to her disappearance. They liquidated a bunch of assets. I wonder, and this is speculation, but given creditors and the federal charges and everything, I wonder Mm -hmm. if and I believe there were properties that were solely in her name. Like, I think she had a portfolio of close to $2 million. And it was, I believe, in her name. I, I'd have to double check that. But I wonder if there was something in terms of creditors coming after them or the federal case or something having to do with him wouldn't benefit them if he had the money because then they would have to pay it back. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm speculating why. Yeah, I don't know either. Those are all good speculations. Yeah. We'll find out the story. But the fact that he was basically uh, being criminally charged with you know stealing all kinds of money, normally his wife would somehow try to protect her own assets. Right. You can't do what's called, I'll use a legal term here, fraudulent conveyance. If somebody's coming after you for money, you can't just say, okay, I'm immediately going to sign it over to so-and-so's name there. Hey, therefore you can't get me on it. Right. Um, you can't do a fraudulent conveyance, but if there's truly money in her name, there are ways to uh, to have protected her money that he would not have access. To. I think it'll be interesting. I mean, obviously we're speculating, but I mean, mm-hmm. these are all things that are going to come out. I think they'll come out fairly soon and it will be interesting to see how this all unfolds. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I, I do think that they 
had a front of what their lifestyle was. And it will be interesting to see. I want to see what Anna was Googling. I want to see, because I started in sort of investigating into that. There are some interesting things that were going on with some of her properties and some scandals having to do with properties that she was managing down in, in Washington. I'd be interested in seeing her her data dump that what's on her computer, what, what I want the larger story of what was going on kind of thing. And we won't get there right now. We're still in kind of the opening gun, the opening rounds. We have very little, we sort of have just some evidence about him trying to uh, cover up an offense is what we mostly got. And again, at at an arraignment, when he's initially charged, they often don't reveal everything that they have too. And they're probably in the process of investigating and so this whole family history has really not been brought out. What the heck was going on? Were they, because there's, there's, there's sort of inklings about him talking about divorcing and talking about, uh, and then she's seeing, we get, we hear things referring uh, from her that, you know, we have a great marriage and we're all in love. And then yet, yet they're in this kind of rental unit. He's in this rental unit back here and she's moving to Washington. And so there's this whole very complicated, we're kind of, you know, we're kind of swimming around in the soup right now. And we don't really know, but I think in the long run, all that is going to be hashed out and will be revealed because it could be very relevant to what is going on, where the money's going, who's moving where, why are they suddenly, they sold their place, but he's renting a place, staying back with the three kids while she's in Washington. It's um, a very, you know, this is um, very complicated uh, human lives going on here. Very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here anytime. Thanks so much. Absolutely. We may be calling you back as this case proceeds. Fabulous. Peter, thank you thank very, you. very much. It's nice to see you. Yeah, great. Terrific to see you. It's been a while. So uh, I'll call me absolutely anytime. It can be on short notice because I'm a media hog. Anything to get my voice or, uh, or face. I What's that old joke? They say the most dangerous place to be is between me, standing between me and a camera. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, anything. I mean, I'm, I'm into shameless self-promotion. So, oh, awesome, <laughs> and we would get along great. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you so much, Peter. Murder, murder.